Hello and welcome to the Stock Podcast. I'm Nate Abercrombie, the host of the only investing podcast that gives everyone the chance to hear public company CEOs and CFOs describe their business and provide the investment case for their company. However, not all interviews feature public company management teams. Every once in a while, I get the chance to interview industry experts, and this is one of those interviews. This week's guest is Ken Anderson, former commissioner with the Public Utility Commission of Texas. Ken had a formidable reputation as a commissioner, both as a defender of consumer interests and as an ardent supporter of free markets. Now, we've talked a lot on this podcast about competitive power markets across the United States, but there's no power market in the United States that's as competitive as the power market in Texas. And part of that is due to the fact that Ken had a seat on the commission where he could push for rules and regulations that supported free markets. And for the longest time, at least from the perspective of the investment community, Ken was the guy that everybody wanted to talk to when it came to capacity markets in Texas. To say there was a little bit of a preference from investors for Texas to adopt a capacity market is, well, a bit of an understatement. They were viewed as a stable source of revenue for competitive power generators up in the Northeast and in the mid-Atlantic regions of the United States, but Texas never adopted capacity markets. This interview touches on subjects that include the SEMPRA acquisition of Encore, electricity regulation in the state of Texas, water rights and the potential for water regulation down the road, as well as some topics related to oil and gas. Now, you're probably going to hear a few things during this interview that you may not be all that familiar with. So if you'll allow me to take one moment to provide a little background, then we'll get to the interview. First thing is ERCOT. ERCOT stands for the Electric Reliability Council of Texas. ERCOT manages the flow of power for about 90% of the state of Texas. And it's also really interesting because it was the first ISO or independent system operator in the United States. ERCOT was established as an ISO in the U.S. back in 1996. It's also the only ISO in the United States that isn't subject to federal oversight. So the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, the FERC does not have oversight over ERCOT. The other thing you'll hear us talk about is the SEMPRA Encore combination. SEMPRA is a diversified California-based utility, and Encore is a fully regulated electric utility in Texas. Now, if you're an avid listener of the IWTB podcast, you've probably listened to interview number 11 with Vistra Energy CEO, Kurt Morgan. And in that interview, Kurt provides some history on his company, Vistra, which used to be a part of a company called TXU Corp. TXU was the largest electric holding company in Texas. They had generation, they had retail, transmission, distribution. They even owned a few coal mines. In 2007, TXU was acquired in what became the largest leveraged buyout in history at about $45 billion. But the buyout was, let's just say, ill-fated for the private equity firms involved in the transaction, and it ended in bankruptcy in 2014. The legacy TXU businesses were split into two separate entities or two separate businesses. Vistra was the power generation business and the retail energy business. And if you haven't heard that interview with Kurt Morgan, I highly recommend it. It's one of my favorites. But Encore's portfolio was essentially the wires and lines business or the regulated transmission and distribution businesses. 
and because Texas is one of the few states in the United States that continues to see pretty significant load growth and opportunities to invest in the transmission and distribution system, Encore as a business was an extremely attractive portfolio of assets for other utilities to own, so it was pretty highly sought after. Nextera Energy, based out of Florida, tried to buy Encore Sherryland, a smaller electric transmission and distribution REIT tried to buy Encore, even Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway tried to acquire Encore. But Sempra Energy eventually won out by offering a price that was about 5% higher than Berkshire's bid of $9 billion. But not before the Public Utility Commission of Texas struck down the bids from Nextera and Sherryland. So there was a lot of drama in the state of Texas when it came to who was going to own Encore. The whole process garnered a lot of headlines and was probably the biggest news event for utility investors last year. And what you'll hear in this interview is the perspective of one of the key decision makers at the PUC, or Public Utility Commission, and some really interesting details and considerations that existed at the commission level. Another topic you'll hear about is CRES. CRES stands for Competitive Renewable Energy Zone. And it was an initiative to, to build transmission lines that would connect the high wind resource areas in the western parts of Texas to demand centers like Dallas and Houston. Without building out the CRES lines, it's probably pretty unlikely that the state of Texas would have been able to grow wind energy production capacity to the nearly 24 gigawatts of installed capacity today. Just to put that number in context, the second largest state in terms of installed capacity is, well, it's my home state of Oklahoma, which has less than a third of the capacity Texas does. Before we get to the interview, let me just highlight a couple of acronyms that are used at least somewhat frequently. LMP stands for Locational Marginal Price. It's essentially just the wholesale price point for power for a particular region. In industry jargon, they call them LMP nodes, and they're essentially just a point on the map where the price for power is determined. Ken also mentions the IMM, which stands for the Independent Market Monitor. And I would think that's self-explanatory, but it's basically just a research firm that provides third-party opinions as to the state of the market. Thanks for tuning in, and I really hope you enjoy the podcast interview with Ken Anderson. Thank you so very much for joining the IWTB podcast. Thank you. So could we first start off talking about your background? How did you eventually find yourself? What did you do before you joined the Public Utility Commission of Texas? And what were the big milestones that led to your eventual appointment to the commission? Well, for 20 years, in Dallas, I practiced law in the areas of corporate and securities, general corporate practice uh, in Texas, M&A work, uh, leverage buyouts, that sort of thing. But on the side, I developed a um, kind of a secondary practice, and it was mostly pro bono, but I developed practice in election law and campaign finance law and political law, and mostly representing various um, Republican candidates, frankly, as a volunteer. In uh, the late 80s, uh, I was asked to join join the staff of, of then-Governor Bill Clements, 
uh, who was the first Republican governor in since Reconstruction. His first term was in was from 1979 to 1983. He then ran for a second term four years later and won in 86. And in um, 1988, I joined his staff as Chief Deputy Director of Governmental Appointments. I worked for him for approximately two years, then returned to Dallas. I continued practicing law. One thing led to another, and uh, I became general counsel of the state party, again, a volunteer position while I practiced law. Uh, while I worked for Governor Clements, I got to know a Democratic state rep you know, by the name of Rick Perry, who became a friend. I also was involved in, with other campaigns uh, during the 90s. Long and short, in 2000, I was contacted by those close to Perry and was asked whether I'd be interested in coming back to Austin for another tour of duty. After talking to my wife, I, I agreed and uh, left the law firm and became the director of governmental appointments for Rick Perry. And that, that job in Texas, one of the principal powers of the governor of Texas is the power to appoint you know, folks to boards and commissions. In a four-year term, a governor will make nearly 3,000 appointments. Wow. My original commitment was to serve two years and getting through re-election uh, in 2002 and the following legislative session in 2003. One thing led to another. In any event, I stayed over six years uh, before finally leaving to return to Dallas. But a few months after I left, I got a call you know, asking whether I'd be interested in going on the PUC. Um, I agreed to do it. And frankly, with one of the great things about being in the appointments process in a governor's office is you have to learn a little bit about every state agency just about. And so you get a, a wide view of state government, but it's it's not very deep. And I always thought, frankly, well, that while the PUC was very important and it was a hard position to fill because it's it was one of the few full-time jobs uh, in state government, there are only nine or 10, 11. It's a, it's a little bit more now, but uh, out of all of the appointments the governor makes, most are volunteer part-time positions. Uh, the PUC, the Environmental Commission, a few others are the relatively few full-time positions. Any event, I, I joined the commission. I agreed to do it and served over nine years uh, on the commission. And I have to say it was it was uh, probably the best job I ever had. The Texas PUC is a really, really interesting place. There are only three commissioners, but its responsibilities are much broader than most other states. So what's the role of a commissioner at the PUC? But before we get to your role at the PUC, I guess maybe it would be more important to just sort of outline what different sectors of the the functions of different sectors within Texas does the commission, what does that include? Is it just, I mean, obviously ERCOT, that's power, but what else? I think the first interesting fact about the PUC is that it, it's, it's actually one of the newer PUCs. It was not formed until 1975 uh, when, the, uh, when the Texas legislature passed a major rewrite of utility regulation. Before that time, utilities were regulated by cities. And so uh, that obviously led to a lot of a lot of conflict, conflicting rates, 
1975, the legislature passed, that formed, among other things, the Public Utility Commission of Texas. Originally, the commission was given authority over utilities in the area of electricity, telecom, as well as water. Interestingly, in the mid-80s, water was taken away and there was a new agency formed called the, the Texas Water Commission. The principal functions were electricity and telecom. Over time, while the commission still has nominal jurisdiction over telecom, the fact of the matter is that most of telecom in Texas now is deregulated in almost all the exchanges that have any size whatsoever. There still are some rural rural monopoly providers, but in telecom, during my tenure on the commission, it sort of ebbed and flowed, but overall, I'd say probably well under 10% of my time was spent on telecom issues, and a lot of that was spent on arbitrations under under federal law that, that the states administer. Electricity really did take up 90, 90 plus a percent of, of our time. As you mentioned, what makes Texas unique is that we have our own grid, ERCOT, Electricity Reliability Council of Texas. But ERCOT constitutes about, it's a little over three quarters of the state in terms of geography, but about 90% of the load in Texas is in ERCOT. Because of the way the Federal Power Act was originally written and because of the, the geography in Texas, ERCOT was never subject to FERC jurisdiction over wholesale sales of electricity. Uh, that remained in Texas. ERCOT continues to be its own grid. The connections, it's not generally connected to the other two interconnections, the Eastern Interconnector, the Western Interconnect. There are some DC ties that are relatively minor uh, as a whole, but as a consequence, the state was able to, with respect to ERCOT, you know, pretty much run, run the whole show. Then, interestingly, as sort of kind of shows the ebb and flow of history, about, I guess, four or five years ago, the commission got, got back the economic regulation of water and wastewater in Texas. So today, nominal authority uh, of the PUC is over over telecom, what's left of telecom, the economic regulation of water and wastewater, which, and, uh, and of course, electricity. Yeah. And uh, we still have, and, and in electricity in ERCOT, the, the commission is both the wholesale regulator as well as the retail regulator. We do have parts of Texas that are in the Eastern Interconnect down in Southeast Texas, mostly Entergy, and in Northeast Texas, in the Western Interconnect, we have El Paso Electric. So what's interesting is a commissioner, we get to, we have experience in all three interconnects uh, and, and have to keep our eye on not just what goes on in ERCOT, but we had to keep our eye on what went on in at FERC and at MISO and the Southwest Power Pool. Why, why is ERCOT the only electric transmission organization where you have I guess, independent system operator where you have no FERC interference. You're not subject to FERC regulation. Why is that? How did that come about? That's an historical development. If you look at the states, I've always thought it's because if you look at the, um, at the states around Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, it really goes back to the, the adoption of the Federal Power Act in the first place. 
which I think was 1935. And the Federal Power Act talks about the interstate sale of electricity at wholesale. That's the jurisdictional foundation. If you think about it, when when electrification occurred uh, in this country, but also in the states you know, surrounding it, you know, the big cities had electricity, and and even then, Texas had more big cities: Dallas, Fort Worth, Austin, San Antonio, Houston. The development of oil and gas led to um, industrial development along the coast as well. ERCOT originally arose during the Second World War out of the need to of the utilities to share power during the during the war effort. Well, if you if, if you look around the if you look at the states around Texas, you know, like in Oklahoma, the Oklahoma City and and Tulsa, everything else is is really pretty rural. So the the grid in Texas evolved on its own by by power lines being built between Dallas and Houston and Fort Worth and San Antonio, not by connecting with power plants outside of Texas. So it, it in many ways it would have, that development's an historical accident. Yeah. Based on geography and the fact that there was a lot of manufacturing, aircraft manufacturing in the Dallas Fort Worth area and in other places. And it was just easier for the of the utilities in Texas to share power within Texas and build lines between the connections. So just it's largely a purely historical accident, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. And Texas is a big state and to connect with neighboring states that were much smaller. Are much smaller, yeah. But I, I didn't realize it had something to do with the war. So that's interesting. So could you talk a little bit about how ERCOT is different from a market perspective? There are quite a few deregulated power markets across the United States, but I think ERCOT holds a unique position amongst deregulated markets in the sense that it's probably the closest thing to a truly free and competitive power market. Could you just describe from your perspective what the differences are between the deregulated, the other deregulated power markets and ERCOT and especially with respect to competition, it begins with the fundamental fundamental fact that ERCOT, because it was not subject to I think federal jurisdiction, the decisions are made by by Texans, you know, for Texans. The Texas legislature has the ultimate the ultimate statutory authority, and a, a little history: the formation of the wholesale par- power market arose out of uh, a series of convergences. One was in the 1980s, a series of, of bloody and controversial fights at the PUC over the, the building of nuke plants. At, this, at sort of at the same time, you had Reliant or the old, the old Houston Power and Light had built the South Texas project, which came online, I think, in the mid or late 80s. You had up in, uh, up in North Texas, at Comanche Peak and its two units that, that came online in the late 80s. And then even in El Paso, uh, the, um, I think it's Palo Verde, the new plant in Arizona, of which El Paso Electric had a, a piece. All that came to a head in a series of raid cases and prudence proceedings over these, these power plants. Huge cost overruns, you know, huge disallowances, I mean, it was an exhausting process by all accounts for those who who went through it. 
you'd like to continue listening to this interview, you'll need to become a member. To become a member, visit the website at thestockpodcast.com. Members have access to all full-length episodes. So go to the website, thestockpodcast.com, and click membership at the top. And with that, take care and good luck with your portfolio.